Hello and welcome to the Cinema Adventure Podcast. We're a movie podcast where every week we sit down and talk about a movie. Sometimes it's an old movie, sometimes it's a new movie. Occasionally we have a guest on and we talk about their favorite movie, a movie they hate. Could be anything. I'm Aiden Walker. And I'm Blake Peterson. What are we talking about today, Blake? Today we're talking about The Night of the Hunter, the 1955 thriller directed by Charles Lawton. Based on the novel by... I, I didn't write it down. So Davis Grubb. By Davis Grubb. Your your favorite He's book boy. He's my favorite author. Just kidding, I've never heard of him. Tell me, Aiden, have you seen The Night of the Hunter before? This was my first time seeing <gasps> The Night of the Hunter, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. This, this was, was your my, second time, right? It's my second time. I watched it maybe six or seven years ago when I was still like a young like movie. I was like trying to become a cinephile, kind of. And so I kind of pretended like I understood. Not that there's a lot to understand, but I pretended like... I, you know, liked it more than I did. Gotcha. I was too young. <laughs> but too young. love it now. This is a wild movie. It's great. It's, it's very really, good. really, good. I jumped in only knowing that it was going to be a very visually intense movie, but mm. I wasn't prepared for how intense it was going to be. No, I didn't even remember, because I feel like when I was a kid, I really just focused on the thriller elements, which already are very, very well done. So I kind of had forgotten that it has this kind of... It definitely is a throwback to, like, the German expressionist style slash, like, silent movie style. Yeah, it looks Um, like those old Fritz Lang movies. Yeah, definitely. Everything is very, like, a lot of harsh angles, really deep shadows, very geometric shapes and patterns and stuff. And I totally had forgotten about that, so when I watched it again, I was really, really struck by that. And honestly, it was weird because the first time I watched it, I was so focused on the thriller stuff and didn't notice the style, whereas this time I noticed the style so much and appreciated it so much that I almost didn't even think about the plot as much. I know you've seen quite a few older movies, many more than I have. Have you seen films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or what's the other one, the like Nosferatu? Because those are German expressionist films that we should probably say what that means, huh? Yeah, so I don't really know if I had like a definition. I feel like it was just really, unless you have a better definition. You go ahead. I've always just thought of it as this style that was really popular in cinema kind of in the 1920s and 30s european filmmakers just utilized this style that was very heavy on shadows and really like high angles and kind of bizarre sets very artificial looking lots of just an emphasis on this kind of artificial style do you have like a better definition no i think that's really good just things you're almost viewing what's happening in the scene from an impossible you said impossible angle i believe yeah right so for instance, you might be looking at a scene that's taking place in a room, but you are so far removed from wherever the fourth wall is that you're you're viewing the room, but this also eerie darkness that's on the outside of the frame that's created by the room that you're looking into. Yeah, no, you're like very hyper aware that you're on a set. They really... Certainly. It's a lot... The German expressionistic style is a lot more about framing and kind of developing these interesting shots more than it is about trying to show this sort of realism. It's very just focus on being an artistic exercise, kind of. Let's talk about what the movie is about. Do a plot summary. Okay. Do you want me to, to try? Sure, you should do it. Okay, so... <laughs> Too much pressure. Okay, let me get the uh, the old cast list up here. <laughs> so there's uh, a few characters who are really important. I'd say the protagonists of the film are, are the characters John Harper and Pearl Harper, brother and sister. John is an older brother. He's played by Billy Chapin. And the younger brother is played, or the younger brother, younger sister, Pearl, is played by Sally Jane Bruce. The two of them live with their mother and father in this kind of riverside country town. And one day their dad just runs back onto the property and he's like, children, children. And he hands them a big old stack of money that he just stole from a bank. And he says, I need you to hide this. So the kids hide it in the young girl's doll. 
stuff all the money into her doll, and then the dad is arrested, and he's taken away to prison to be executed. Yes, he's given he the death penalty. Murdered but... two people oh, while doing yeah. the bank robbery. So while he's in prison, you see him in prison briefly. He runs into Robert Mitchum's character, who's called Harry Powell. He's this terrifying, very very tall man who has tattoos on his fingers. He's got the tattoo on his right hand of the word love and on his left hand the word hate. And basically he coerces the father of these children to divulge where he hid the money. The father doesn't say too much. He just says basically, you know, it's back at my place. And he says where he lives. Robert Mitchum's character, Harry Powell, gets out of prison. He goes back to the house. He is this real smooth talking, kind of silver-tongued character. And he charms his way kind of through every situation, even though he is clear, well, it's very dramatized that you're not supposed to like him. He's kind of an Eddie Haskell kind of character, you know? Anyway, so he charms his way into their house and marries the children's mother. And then behind the mother's back for the rest of the film is trying to coerce the children into telling him where the money is, right? Yeah. The kids run away because, well, he kills their mother and then he tries to track them down. They run away, they escape on a boat down river and he, the rest of the film is basically him trying to find them. Mm. And then eventually he is caught and arrested at the end of the film. Yeah, and it should be mentioned too that one of the reasons he charms the mother of these children so immediately is because he pretends that he's like a reverend or a preacher. Yeah. And so everyone around him automatically kind of likes him because he is a religious man. And so he uses that. And like the love and hate tattoos come into play. He has this monologue that he kind of delivers to everyone that I don't have written down at all. But it's basically this very dramatic sermon that he's obviously told many, many times. And he kind of uses that as a way to win people over. Yeah, his his styling is that he says, he says, oh, whenever anybody knows notices his hand tattoos, he says, oh, did I ever tell you the story of love and hate? Yep. And then he puts his hands together, intertwines the fingers and makes it look like the hands are wrestling each other and basically says, oh, and well, love is about to win, but then, oh, hate's about to get him back, but love always wins in the end. And it's this really dramatic thing. So speaking mm. of him being a reverend, I want to read the opening quote of the movie that's from Matthew 7:15. We're mm. going to get biblical on this here <laughs> podcast. Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, for inwards they are ferocious wolves. That's good. Yeah. It matches so well. It matches so well with so his character well. because he's charming and everybody likes him, but he's a wolf. He really is. And it is funny because in the movie, one of the reasons the movie is scary is because Pretty much all the adults he meets are automatically charmed by him, whereas like the children, mostly is it John is the the son's name, he kind of is automatically very leery of this guy. And so he kind of could recognize immediately that it is a wolf in sheep's clothing, kind of. I think it's scary about the movie is you kind of can almost remember when you're a child and you're very powerless to what adults are saying and doing around you, what they're telling you to do. And so you kind of can go in John's shoes for a minute and be like, I totally know what that feels like to be you're kind of freaked out about something, but like no one will listen to you because you're a kid, basically. You remember my rules of horror film from our Halloween special? Tell me, remind me. I'm gonna remind you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Always, if you're in a horror film, listen to children. Yes. Listen to the reactions of children and animals. If they mm -hmm. had a dog that was scared of Robert Mitchum, it would have really tied a little neat bow on this. I'm glad there wasn't a dog, because you know what would happen to that dog. That dog would probably get killed by Robert and Mitchum. I don't like it, so I'm glad it didn't happen. Yeah, and the other rule, of course, is don't have sex, but that's not a problem in this movie. Yeah, no, not a problem at all. That's like one of the most, actually one of the, that's another terrifying scene too, is when the Shelley Winters character and Robert Mitchum's character, like after they get married, she kind of expects to have the typical kind of honeymoon experience and he automatically 
kind of rejects the idea of sex and acts like it's only used for reproduction and she's sinful for even like thinking about doing that. There's even like a a line where she goes to the window and kind of like prays that she'll someday like be pure enough for her new husband. Which is interesting too because she's living in this period where you don't really have a say in that kind of thing. So to think that she'd rather change herself than just be who she is definitely speaks to that time for sure. This movie has a lot of really intense religious fanaticism yeah. that happens in it. One of the things that is referenced and important for the film is the story of Cain and Abel. Robert Mitchum tells the story of love and hate with his wonderful tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> he, he says that hate, that the left hand is what struck the killing blow on Abel from Cain. I couldn't really remember the whole story, so I, yeah. I looked it up. And it's actually pretty fascinating, and I think oh. it applies a lot oh, to the character of Harry Powell. Basically what happened was Cain and Abel are the two sons of Adam and Eve. They both made sacrifices and offerings to God, but God favored Abel's offerings. Cain didn't really like that, so he killed his brother. He murdered Abel. And God ended up punishing Cain and sentencing him to a life of wandering. But he basically used his God powers to mark him so that he couldn't be killed by another man. Uh, so he's basically, you know, condemned to walk forever by himself, which is important because, right, we see Robert Mitchum's character wandering and walking. Not aimlessly, but he has some kind of goal, but it seems like just wandering throughout the film, right? There's a lot of interpretations that I was seeing around when I was reading about this where he seems to be like this originator of evil and violence and greed. It fits with this character. He is, there is nothing redeemable yeah, about him. not at all. That is interesting to the Cain Abel point because I didn't even really think about that, but... It is interesting too because I think that the year before the movie East of Eden also kind of took the story of Cain and Abel and implemented it to make kind of a family drama. So the fact that kind of these, so the same story can take totally different paths. Like one is this very like melodramatic, very big budget Hollywood soap opera kind of thing, one direction, and then this totally other direction of this very maleficent psychological thriller. I like how there's the two. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, there's nothing redeemable about him, and it is interesting because when Charles Lawton was casting people, he really wanted Gary Cooper originally for that role, but because it was this venomous character, like, Cooper did not want to do it. Mitchum really liked the challenge and was very up for it. And Robert Mitchum never played any characters that were like this not after really. It. I mean, he plays a lot of kind of anti-hero kinds of things, but they're always characters that you can root for, whereas, like, Harry Powell, there's nothing redeemable. He's just downright evil. You don't like him at all. And that is, I think, a bigger risk in 1950s Hollywood than it is now. I think when you develop yourself as this really prominent leading man, you kind of want to stick with this good image. So the fact that he would totally do, like, almost a... Um, 180 with his kinds of parts and do this kind of role is very very good and he's really good in the part too so we should mention part of what makes him so scary in this film is that he sings constantly he sings constantly? He, he sings well he's got a great voice uh -huh. but he's always singing these biblical songs while he's riding on horseback trying to track down these kids who are creepy. hiding the money there's all these shots of him wandering over hillsides where he is completely a silhouette just utter darkness and there's this it's almost like minor key kind of toned not they're happy songs but they're sung by an evil person and that's what makes them so threatening yeah and also like the calmness in the way he sings too kind of also signifies that he has complete confidence in what he's doing you kind of get the sense that he's done this before and so that makes him scarier too is that he 
He's so okay with what he's doing that he's able to sing these creepy songs. He's also very just vocal in general. Like he sings a lot. He also like growls a lot when he when something doesn't go his way. He'll like growl or moan. He's not like a sneaky sword. He really likes to make his presence known, and he is a very vocal person. Very unsettling. This character is good at hiding and unashamed of being evil. Very unashamed of being evil. He was actually based on, I didn't know this, but he was based on this serial killer from the, kind of the 1930s named Harry Powers who had the exact same mode of operation, basically. I do wonder, because I mean, back then there's obviously not a lot of media coverage that you can see now from the 1930s, but I'd love to see how much the real life version, and the fact that there is a real life version too is very scary to think about. This um, is based on a semi-true story. Yeah, semi-true story. And so it makes you wonder like if the real version of him, if he was kind of the similarly operatic villain. Do you want to talk about the look of the film? Sure, let's talk about it. This film is in black and white. We should mention that. It's yes. from 1955. Mm -hmm. The look of it is really, there's a lot of contrast. Really, really dark darks, really, really bright yeah. whites. And they use this in the cinematography and in the blocking of the scenes to really establish who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. They do a very good job at this. They like to cast Harry Powell in complete darkness a lot. The first time he appears on the farm, oh, really, so is the two children are up in their bedroom and it's nighttime and suddenly there is a shadow on their wall. It's the silhouette of a man wearing a big hat. And you get this elongated shot of them looking just terrified of that and then you see outside and Harry Powell's just standing there by a street lamp, just oh, staring the at their house, mm -hmm. just in complete silence, complete darkness. And he, again, is just cast in shadow and unseeable. The most intense scene, I think, in this movie is when the children are hiding in the basement from him, and he is standing at the top of the stairs, and he says, oh, children, I know you're hiding down yeah. there. And when he's looking down the stairs, that he it's totally dark in the basement, but there's light coming from the room at the top of the stairs, and it's coming from behind him. So when he's looking down the stairs at the children, trying to find them to, who knows, kill them, coerce them into giving them him money, whatever his horrible idea is, He's cast completely in shadow. But then the woman from the soda fountain who works in the town shows up at the house in this moment. She calls out, you know, oh, Harry, is anybody home? Blah, blah, blah. And he does this turn and puts on this big smile and responds to her in the silver-tongued way that he has been doing the whole movie. And then he's completely cast in light again. Mm. When he does that turn around, he puts back on his creepy disguise. But anytime he looks down the stairs... Total shadow. Yeah. The One of the lines that he says there, too, is in his jovial voice when he's looking down the stairs of the children is, now, children, you better come back out. I can feel myself starting to get mad. It's something <laughs> like that. It's really, oh, it's, so bad. it's really, really very creepy. Yeah, and he's, because he's just so in control. And also, too, with the visual style, it really pairs well with the set design, because the set design is so, has this really big emphasis on shapes and, you know, pairing these weird angles with the uh, camera work. Um, but because there is, like, all these weird, weirdly designed sets combined with this very high contrast cinematography, it really resembles a nightmare, especially like a children's nightmare. And it feels like that phoniness is unsettling because it doesn't, because there are so many shadows, you feel like there's really not any place of escape. It's very claustrophobic because of that. And I like the way, because I mean, Charles Lott, when he made the movie, he set out to do that. And that was really important to him. And even back then, it wasn't really understood, but now you can really see how even though it is an homage to earlier styles, for the material at hand, it works very well. There's not a lot that's very subtle no, about the film. It's all very methodical and planned out. Yeah. But it, it doesn't ever feel like that. It just feels like he made this stylistic choice 
but it pairs so well with the content that you're not, it doesn't feel super deliberate, even though the you know effects are really great in the long run. It's not like he's trying too hard. Which is interesting because, I mean, Charles Lawton didn't make any other movies. This was his only movie. But you feel like you have this filmmaker who is in such control and knows exactly what he wants. And so the fact that it's his only movie is kind of shocking to me. And it's also kind of a bummer that he never made another movie as well. Well, part of the reason he didn't was that this film was not well received. Yeah, no, it, it came really out and people didn't, people didn't like it. Mm-hmm. People didn't see it. Yeah. And he was crushed by the fact that people didn't like it. So Which just, kills me. Yeah. I mean, if it had been well received, like it makes you wonder how many other great movies he would have made. I know that he, because he had directed on stage before, and I think he did afterward, but I mean, we'll never really get to witness that work. So that is a shame that this is kind of all we have of his. Because he's a very gifted, he's usually known as, he's one of the most like acclaimed actors of his generation. He's in a lot of really important stuff, mostly like in the 30s. So yeah, it makes you bummed out that you didn't get to see this actor turned filmmaker really explore what he could have done. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like if this is, you know, the one movie he does, like, that's probably, this is a good stamp to have. It's not oh, there could have been more. Like, this is a very fully formed movie, so. So, just more on looks. Everything is a set. Everything's really obviously a set. The whole town that they are in is so plainly constructed. It doesn't look real. The whole scene where the children are escaping down the river in their boat, the water's flowing in the opposite direction that their boat is moving. Uh It's every, everything is totally a set. It's all constructed. And it, it works because the story feels so much like a very, dark kind of Brothers Grimm fairy tale. Yeah. You know, that it, it works in that way. Just speaking of the fairy tale aspect of this, during those scenes when they're on the river, there's a series of shots that show the, the children and then they show some animals on yeah. shore. And they do that with multiple things. The first thing you see is the children's boat is passing and you're, the camera is right behind a spider's web and the children end up in the middle of the web. And then, you know, it's symbolic, like they're in the middle of this horrible yeah. situation, right? It's pretty plain to see. <laughs> then there's these shots of them con- contrasted with two rabbits, then two tortoises, then a fox and a tree. And it all feels, th- this yeah. film to me feels like Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn in the darkest possible timeline. No, it really is. That was like the first thing I thought. Like even when I was writing like a review of the movie, like, like in my first sentence, I point out that it's like just this almost a poisonous fairy tale. It has all these elements that you'd recognize from a fairy tale, but it's weird because the story does feel like it's coming from a place of something that is kind of plausible, but at the same time it's presented in such an artificial way that it's, it is like a realistic fairy tale almost. It's yeah. very interesting. The artifice of, of each location being so methodically planned really lends to you being able to tell very clearly what each location is. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? All the scenes that take place at night outside of the children's home, the house is always surrounded by fog. So yeah. you can't see any other surrounding anything of the house. Did you ever see uh, uh, the animated stop motion, the Coraline movie? I didn't, no. no? I mean, I've seen shots from him, but okay. I haven't seen him. There's a whole thing in Coraline where the world, there's this other world that she goes to that's totally constructed by this witch. Um, and she walks around the entire world, world at one point. But when she walks away from the house, everything becomes white. Mm. Like this whole zone that just hasn't been written in yet, hasn't been created. I feel like if you walked too far away from any of the places in this movie, you'd end up in a place like that, right? That's interesting. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. I like I do like the artificial thing, and it is funny because even I think Robert Mitchum wanted really badly to shoot on location, but Charles Lawton, both because he didn't have money, I mean he didn't have money in the first place really, um, but he was like, no, no, like this needs to be filmed on sound stages, and so it was very firm to not film. I guess like this takes place supposedly in like kind of an Appalachian town, but that was just not a thing in Lawton's mind. He wanted it to be sound stage. Even the rivers were built 
on sound stages and they just like filled part of it with water. But I like that. I think a lot of times when you watch these older Hollywood movies, they don't really pay attention to the fact that it is completely fake, whereas this one seems very aware of it and tries to make the most of it. So I like kind of how it utilizes those sets in that way. Yeah, and there's nothing about the falsity of what you're looking at that takes you out of the film. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel drawn in by it. Exactly. It just feels like you're it feels like you're at a play that's being performed really well or you're you're just you you're aware that you're in something that isn't real. It's like it's like playing a really good video game, you know, you just fall into that world. Yeah, and that I think that contributes to just the to the nightmarish aspect of it. I feel like even this plot is something that very well could be taken out of a nightmare and just because the movie looks everything about it doesn't look very real and the situations themselves are exaggerated in how they are yeah it is just this hyper real nightmare almost i wasn't reminded of a lot while i was watching this movie you know no, i didn't I watch neither. this movie and say oh this really reminds me of this thing it's it really stands on its own it's it really pretty does. unique there was one thing though that did that <laughs> made me say i think i've seen this before what is this and i thought about it and i realized when the kids first get into the boat and they start heading down the river and you see all the detail on the the weeds that are like the seaweed and it's kind of the stuff that's in the river and the fog that's all over it. Oh, no, sorry, excuse me. It's it's when they get in, yeah, it is when they first get in the river. Uh -huh. It's when they're running from Mitchum and they jump on the boat and he can't quite get to them and he's yelling at them, right? It's the same scene from the first Lord of the Rings movie oh, where really? they're, run they're running away from the ring wraith, the oh. big cloaked gentleman who's trying to get the ring back from Frodo and Frodo and all the other hobbits hop onto a raft oh. and they stop because they can't get in the water and it just kind of screeches at them. Hmm. But it's the same kind of thing. The river is all foggy and you yeah. see just kind of the dirtier, grittier looking side of that otherwise fairy tale esque world. Yeah, no, I feel like you, yeah, just thinking about this movie, I don't feel like anything, I don't feel like it takes from any other material. I, you can see a lot of influence with David Lynch's early movies, and even sometimes with the Coen brothers, I was reminded a lot of their movie, The Man Who Wasn't There, which is kind of a film noir tribute, and that kind of has this similarly very highly stylized black and white photography and this very distinct set design. But yeah, you really think, especially when you put yourself in the headspace of that era of Hollywood, there's really nothing like that that used these artificial sets in a way that was different. I feel like most people just used them and didn't think twice about it, whereas it's very deliberate here. But yeah, you can see so many influences. And that's that's cool too that he can make such, that Lawton can make such a big stamp just with this one movie. Then I mean, so many filmmakers can make 10 or more movies and not really leave that much of a footprint, so. That's always cool too. Oh, I do love the shot in the movie after Shelley Winters' character, spoiler alert, is killed by Powell. And there's this really, really creepy shot that Lawton really draws out. It's not like a short little thing, but he kind of takes you into the river that's nearby the house and you see her, is she tied to a car? That yeah. She's tied to a car apparently by him. I think she her throat was slit, and then he put her in that and made it look like an accident. Wow, I didn't even notice that. All I caught was the fact that her hair was all floating up and moving yeah. in the same way as all the seaweed that was around her. Yeah, yeah. No, I think well, I think I read that afterward that like she had gotten her throat cut and they tried to cover it with the hair, but Lam was like, no, no, like let's just leave that in to add it as kind of another element because you want to make it look like an accident, so that's why he like put her in the car. Although if he tied her, I guess that doesn't seem like an accident, but whatever. Anyway, just that shot, the fact that that could fly in 1955, this very kind of an ultra conservative era that didn't really emphasize violence in that kind of way, like the fact that they would linger on this shot of her corpse for that long and really make it as haunting as possible. And I think it also leaves a stamp too because you're kind of unsure of his character for a while, like how far is he going to go and then you see that and then you become automatically way more terrified. But just that, that alone is so memorable. I feel like even though I haven't seen it in six years, I that was kind of the shot I thought of the most. 
even though I kind of forgot everything else, it was that. And then there's a shot of like Lillian Gish um, on her porch and you just like see her silhouette in a rocking chair. Oh, with the shotgun? Yeah, with the shotgun. And it's literally like those two shots are what I've always thought about when I think about this movie. We should talk about the character who discovers uh, her body in the river. Oh, I am. Poor Uncle Bertie. <laughs> Poor Uncle Bertie. So sorry for him. Yeah. He's this sweet man who <laughs> is friends with the children and, well, he's their uncle. Or is, he may not actually be their uncle. I don't... I don't really know anyone's relation. There's a lot of people yeah, that are kind of Yeah, they call him Uncle circle. Bertie. Yeah. He's just... He seems like the town nice older gentleman. The town nice guy. The town know. nice guy. Yeah, he's a fisherman and he teaches John how to fish and there's a... Yeah, this, this movie is violent not overtly but kind of subtly right you know you see you see the effects of violence the only real like intense violence that's really pictured is when well i guess harry powell does get shot at at the end but early on in the film when john and uncle birdie are out fishing on a boat they reel in a fish and john's like oh we got one and then uncle birdie just starts whacking it (laughs) with like a it's an oar right he gets the oar and he just like beats it and you kind of see john's reaction in the background like oh this is what happens when you get the fish on the boat yeah no, it is worth thinking about. Like, this movie technically is very, very violent. We just don't see really any of that violence, but we know that Harry's done very violent things in the past and that, uh, and we see the effects later on of what he's done. So, yeah, like, even though you don't see it necessarily in your mind, it is a very violent and kind of horrific movie, which is interesting how it can do that with this subtlety. Like, it still has the same effect, but you don't have to necessarily see it, which also, you know, speaks to a lot of newer films who, you know, that like to try, try to show everything. Sometimes, understatement... I think is a lot more powerful. Yeah. I was I got more chills from from yeah. Harry Powell than I did from I don't know. Well, from Michael Myers in <gasps> in Halloween. I was more scared of of Harry Powell and I think part of it's because he's more he's more real. Yeah. You know, he's more of a Well, he's realer and everything he does is a lot more planned out whereas like Michael Myers, he's really good at hiding and stuff and sneaking around, but he's still more like I just need to kill this person. Let me, you know, figure out how to do that best whereas Harry Powell it's like he comes into every situation almost with like a blueprint almost. He just knows what to say and do perfectly with everything, basically. You feel like he almost could never get caught in a way. If... Yeah, he's he's a character that you just know from the outset has gotten away with murder he's gotten away with multiple times. Yeah, and it is nice because they don't, I mean, they don't discuss his past that much, but when you do kind of read into the backstory of the real-life version, and I kind of almost in a way recommend doing that before because when you do that, you kind of almost can develop a backstory in your mind and make him even scarier. Where were we? Good question. I know exactly where we were, oh, Blake. Oh, I'm so glad you A uh, fun fact with Blake. A fun oh, fact we with Blake. <laughs> Come on, Blake. You're on a podcast. Tell me some fun facts. I feel like even like the last one where I had fun facts, I slipped so many in during it so sneakily that who knows what I have left. Maybe I'm just going to keep doing that. Just sneak all of them in so when you do the song, I'll be like, sorry, I already said them. Well, you're going <laughs> to embarrass me if I sing the song and you don't be, have any fun that'll facts. That would be pretty funny. I'd really enjoy it. Um, <laughs> not said. Okay, so um, Lawton apparently um, was a really good director to have. He was very open to actor input. I mean, I earlier said that like he didn't like Mitchum's idea of like shooting on location, but a lot of the actors would kind of tell him like what they think would be better for their character. Like Maybe they thought something wouldn't work in the script, and he would always be really receptive to them and really compliment their ideas and sometimes would implement them and so a lot of people, particularly Mitchum, said it was one of their like favorite shooting experiences because he was so easy to work with 
even though he had all these really good ideas, like he was always really open. He wasn't this harsh auteur. But he, I guess the only people that didn't have a good time necessarily were like the child actors. I guess he couldn't stand them. Oh, they kind of sound annoying. The kid who plays John, I guess, kind of had a chip on his shoulder because he had recently won like the New York Critics Circle something for some film part. And so I guess like there was one point where Lawton recommended he do something and he's like, well, I just won this award. So like, why should I even listen to you? And I guess it pissed Lawton off so much that he like made Mitchum direct the rest of the scenes with him, which I don't know if that's true, but I mean, that was one thing. Allegedly. Allegedly. I like to think, I think it's very dramatic and funny. And then the little girl who plays Pearl, I guess was kind of like a suck up. And so would constantly kind of try to act like she was the best one in the cast. And so even though she wasn't necessarily like the John kid where like she just thought she was the best, she was just always so obsessed with trying to be the best that it like drove Lawton crazy. And I guess it's like why he picked her as well, because he saw her do that kind of in the audition. He was like, that's kind of the Pearl character, always kind of trying to be the best in everyone's eyes. So We should also lend her a little bit of credence because she was She's like five so years old. Five years old. So I, I, let's just be harsh. No, just kidding. Let's just be harsh. But, <laughs> five years you old. know, I was reading the, the Roger Ebert mm-hmm. review of this film, and he refers to her as owl face. I love that. And he's like... <laughs> The strangeness of some of the ways that the characters look in the film adds mm-hmm. to the the yeah. oddity of it. She has just this super duper round, full moon round kind face. of face. All, her hair is done in super, super tight curls. She looks like something out of a painting almost. She doesn't really <laughs> look like a real person. It's, it's wild. Yeah, no, she's like a Norman Rockwell kind of child. Like just this very picture perfect. And she acts very perfectly to like any little daughter that you'd probably see in like a sitcom from the time. But no, that's like really good casting. And even though they were apparently annoying, like still perfect casting there. I guess she never acted after this movie. This was like her last performance and she's like, nobody really knows what she did. So this was the breakout role and the the final role. role. I know it's just a combo. We should be talking more about her, I guess. Most talented five-year-old. Where did she go? Where did she go? Where is she now? And the kid who played John, I think quit acting a few years later, but he had like drug and alcohol problems in the future. So that... Didn't work out See, well for child, him. See, child acting was even bad in the 50s. <laughs> it, it was, was not great. Just as bad now. Yeah. And then I also mentioned, too, that um, Lawton originally wanted Gary Cooper. He also wanted Betty Grable for the Shelley Winters part, which would have been really interesting. I don't know if you know much about her, but she was a really popular pinup model during the time who also did a bunch of very cheery musicals. It's like basically all she did. Like She was just in a bunch of like Technicolor musicals and had this image, almost like a Debbie Reynolds kind of thing. This would have been made toward, I think she made her last movie this year, but she had never done a movie like this, so I would have really liked to see her in this part. I think Shelley Winters is like perfectly cast for it because she kind of has this worn out look to her, but that would have been interesting. Although I guess Mitchum didn't like the casting of Winters and thought she like wouldn't be believable, which is trash. I don't believe that at all. What else? What are some other fun facts? Oh, the part in the cell where Robert Mitchum does a little upside down thing. That was his idea. And Lawton's like, oh, oh we, should t- we should say what that is. Uh, <laughs> when the father of the children is in jail for stealing yes. the money and killing two people, he's prison cellmates with Robert Mitchum's Harry Powell character. Yeah. And we, we see this crazy conversation where Powell leans down from the top <laughs> bunk 
and their dad just has this visceral reaction where he just <laughs> punches Mitchum in the face and he falls off the top bunk onto the ground. It's so funny too because that part kind of speaks to how much like Powell is just like this total opportunist. Like he kind of gets like the vibe that he could get something and he just goes down in this almost cartoonish way. Yeah. Like and he's such a vulture. Yeah, the way he swoops down is really reptilian. Yeah. He's just such a he's snake. so creepy. Yeah. He's really creepy. Another fun fact with Mitchum. Mitchum in general is just like loves this movie. Like he talked about it later. It was like one of his favorite experiences. He loved playing this character because it was such a stretch for him but I guess also too like he wanted it so bad that when he was auditioning and Lawton was like we need someone who is a diabolical shit and Mitchum replied present so he really (laughs) really wanted it so good for him he's terrific oh and also I just keep talking about who was I thought you said you buried all the fun facts in the episode look at this I just keep saying also please digress Um, this might be the last one so that's good Another, I feel like just in general, the casting he wanted didn't work out originally. But he also really wanted his wife, Elsa Lanchester, who's best known as the Bride of Frankenstein. He wanted her for the Rachel role, but like, even though they were married, like, she wouldn't say why she didn't want to play it. And she was like, you know what? You should cast Lillian Gish. Just like, bottom line was like, this is who you should do. And like, it worked out, I guess. But I can't picture that because I feel like. And most of her other roles, I haven't seen The Bride of Frankenstein because I'm just, like, a fake movie fan, I guess. But I feel like Elsa Lanchester is always kind of this, like, very cheery British woman. I think she has, like, a gap tooth, so she kind of looks like a cartoon character almost. Very round-faced, like, I couldn't picture her in the Rachel role that Lillian Gish does because it is such a matronly, almost a mother goose kind of thing. So I that'd be interesting. But I'd love to see the movie of, like, his dream, of Lawton's dream casting. What would that be like? Would it be as good? I don't think so. Especially with Cooper, I cannot picture him at all. Although he is imposing, he's very tall. But I feel like that's the only thing I can think of that like makes it kind of make sense. So, whatever. <laughs> he's really good looking in a very different way than Robert Mitchum is. Robert Mitchum can, can yeah. pull off the skeevy. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's why he's been cast as kind of, he's been in some skeezier kind of roles. Yeah, know? no, for sure. No, I think, like, yeah, Cooper is kind of an all-American kind of good-looking, whereas, like, Robert Mitchum, he kind of has, like, these very heavy hooded eyes. And so you kind of, he is very attractive, but you do, you would believe it that maybe he would have a dark side more than Cooper, because I honestly couldn't picture that. I feel like we should talk a little bit maybe about, um, let's see if I can find her on my list. Ruby. The character Ruby, played by Gloria Castillo. Is she the one who, like, pressures Shelly Winters into getting married? Is that her? No, it's the girl who, she's, like, the teenager that's being taken care of. Yeah, she's the teenager that's being taken care of by Lillian Gish's character. And she, you know, she says that she's, what does she say that she's going off to do? She says that she's, she tells her mother figure character that. I remember. Yeah. Maybe we don't need to talk about it. Maybe we don't. Because remember, she goes off and... She's kind of the reason why they get discovered by Powell, right? Yeah, because so. she, she's been telling her mom she's going off to get, like, knitting lessons or something. Mm-hmm. Remember? She's like, oh, Lillian Gish, I'm going to get knitting done. <laughs> but then she confesses later, oh, I was going out to meet boys. And one of those times <laughs> when she... Scandalous. One of those times when she was out <laughs> trying to meet boys... Harry Powell bought her ice cream and asked There's her a bunch so of questions. Too old. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. <coughs> I just don't like it. <laughs> But yeah, that works. I mean, he's very obviously very charming, so I feel like in a way he could almost convince her, like, there's not a weird age difference at all. It's fine that I have this weird interest in you. <sighs> Ugh, he's so bad. I also kind of like the character. I can't remember her name either. I guess who I thought was Ruby was the the like the middle-aged woman who's friends with Shelley Winters. 
who early oh, on. Oh, this is the same woman who runs the soda fountain, right? Yes. Is yeah. that, okay. I don't know anyone's name. But I was really like, it was shocking to me how she like, because pre- early on she kind of, like right after Shelly Winters, I feel like I'm saying everyone's full name also, which is really weird. <laughs> um, but like right Dial after- back, man. Um, <laughs> But, like, right after Winners' husband dies, she's like, well, you know, you're not going to be young forever, so, like, who, who are you getting married to next? Basically, like, right off the bat after this, oh, yeah. her husband's death. And I remember watching that being like, what the frick is wrong with this lady? But um, definitely speaks to the times, for sure. Like, you can't apparently be, like, a single mom and not get married the second something goes wrong with your marriage. It is funny, too, because she goes from the beginning from just loving Harry Powell so much, and then at the end you see him after he's kind of become a villain in the public's eyes. Suddenly this very sweet character is like, not one of the leaders of like the angered public, but she's very venomous in her hatred of Oh yeah, there's the whole scene at the end where everybody in the town freaks out after they learn about what's happened and they form a violent mob with torches. (laughs) I mean, he kind of deserves it, but it is funny seeing her character totally change like that all of a sudden. Did you ever see M? I did see M, yeah. Really do you remember this? Do you remember? Well, I mean, it's kind of the whole plot of the movie. M is about a child molester who mm-hmm. kidnaps a child and kills her, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. And he's like a serial killer. He's like, a, he does yeah. multiple. Basically, the town catches him and they have this underground secret tribunal yeah. to persecute him. And the way the crowd acts and moves in this movie, since it is the, it's got that German expressionist look that M also has, it looks a lot the same, right? The, the yeah. crowd is cast in all these shadows and it's really dark, but the, the light of the torches really stands out. And Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely similar. And I think, yeah, because M was one of the original German expressionist movies. That's when it was like at the height. So it wasn't like paying tribute, like that was one of the original. So it is funny. You do have that kind of these parallels in characters a little bit and kind of similar styles. But yeah, definitely reminded me of M when I watched this, which maybe that's a recommendation. If you want to be really depressed, watch these movies back to back. That's a lot. I think M's a little bit heavier though. Totally. Definitely more because you kind of almost sympathize with the killer more because you get an inside look into how he's like psychologically struggling with himself. So there's a little, I mean, he's obviously a creep, but you do see him in a more sympathetic light, whereas Harry Powell is just... M M is so much more of like a philosophically heavy yeah. kind of film, whereas this one is heavy because it's just dark. Yeah. But at the same time, at least this film has some kind of sense of adventure to it. Yeah, some adventure, and it's a little more of just like popcorn kind of movie. You can just watch it kind of as a thriller, whereas Emma's, you definitely have to kind of debate it because it doesn't really have like a sound moral compass. Like every turn is not necessarily totally moral. So but yeah, watch those back to back, I guess. <laughs> I think we've made it to final thoughts. Final thoughts. It's weird because I feel like I watch it, even though you don't watch it and you're not, you do watch, you have the same effect as watching a horror movie. You're very freaked out. And it's not, I think when you watch the best movies ever made, usually you there's this really huge sense of grandeur and you really watch something important. Whereas this one, it has the effect of a horror movie, but it is truly, when you think about it, one of, I think one of the best movies ever made, just because there's nothing Nothing really like it, and it took so many risks at its time. And it was so influential in so many ways that I think it is definitely kind of a must-see. It also transitioned, I think, too, into how the 1960s in cinema, they became a little more experimental. And I think this was kind of an early example of movies transitioning into more experimental fare. So that's a good reason to watch it. Also, it's just one of the best, if you're interested in old Hollywood movies, this is a good starting point because it doesn't feel, a lot of them, are a little bit dated, whereas this one is very timeless, in my opinion. 
Yeah, what do you think? I, I agree. I think this is a really great movie. And I think that it's important to see films like this because you can get an idea of what it means to make a film that breaks convention. Yeah. This this film does some stuff with the camera and with the lighting that's really unique and really interesting. And it's it's clear that people from across departments were doing things that were wild and different and radical while they were making this. People who were designing the sets made it look larger than life or smaller than life or unbelievable mm-hmm. in ways that made it feel different and new. And the camera work is pretty bizarre in some places. There's times when there's an entire black constraint around the screen making it oh, so yeah. all you can see is a small circle to make your eyes focus on things. You know, the camera goes underwater to see things happen. The score for the film is pretty intense. It doesn't try to blend into the background and just give you kind of a feeling of what the emotions are. It's big and it's sweeping. It's almost like a John Williams score in a lot of ways. So it has that added sense of importance. So I think I think that if you want to see a movie where everybody was just kind of going buck wild with it, yeah. that this is the one for you. Yeah, and it still feels so fresh. You don't feel like, oh, this has been done to death. It's been so copied. Like, it's just so singular. A lot of the time, even though the film's in black and white, things do have, even though it's like really dark darks and light lights in the black and white, it does feel like there's a very intentional gradation of color. Yeah. So whenever the kids are on the water in the boat, and you see there's all the sparkles on the water from the moonlight, it feels so real and it has, every image has a lot of depth. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. it's really, it's difficult to explain in this medium. It's, I wish I had pictures <laughs> to show, you know. But yeah, yeah you it's something that it. you have to see. You yeah. have to see it, just this do is, it. This is a must see <laughs> Must see, yeah. All right, what would you recommend that uh, the people watch if they watched this movie Ooh. and they enjoyed it? Wow, you know what's bad? I didn't like write anything down, so I'm just gonna just try do it to, off the dome. I'm just gonna figure it out. So first, I would recommend Touch of Evil, which is a 1958 film noir directed by Orson Welles, who similarly makes kind of this very unconventional thriller with a very singular visual style, um, and has kind of these these similar ideas where it is kind of an adventure in some respects, but it does touch on all these other different themes that are interesting. But that's kind of a similar similarly unorthodox. Hollywood Golden Age movie, so watch that. I think that was also a critical and commercial failure failure that was later perceived to be one of the best movies ever, so maybe watch even those back-to-back. Who knows? That's a good one. I would say John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre reminded me of that, kind of making an unconventional studio thriller, focusing on kind of a dirtiness and not really going with the conventions of the time. Reminded me a lot of that. And then just in general, while we're on the topic of film noir... I don't think it's very stylistically similar, but I think if you're going to watch, like, the best film noirs or whatever. I know I talk about this movie a lot, but I would say watch The Big Sleep if you're looking for, like, the best of this specific genre. That one's a little bit different because it's more of a detective movie, but also doesn't really follow the same conventions of the era. It's very much its own work. But yeah, those are my recommendations. What about you? So I'm going to recommend, because of the kind of southern riverside mm. vibe of this movie, I think you should, if you haven't already, watch the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. I think this film has some similar feeling to it. That's a, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? is a much more joyful story. <laughs> and, you know, this, this film draws from some biblical stuff and some older storytelling, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? is just a southern retelling of the Odyssey. So if you want to get some of that mythology going for you, that's my recommendation. I would also say if you want some more kind of hysterical townsfolk kind of storytelling, you should watch The Crucible. 
mm. the one with Daniel Day Lewis. That's uh, that is something. <laughs> uh, do you do you like that movie? I like. I don't love it, but I I respect it. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I remember enjoying reading The Crucible in high school and just getting kind of some. So I, I liked watching it when we watched it, yeah, but that also, was that was many years ago. Yeah, it's definitely a good movie to like if you're in the mood to get really mad. Like, yeah, just watch that. It's one of those movies like nothing's fair. That and then when I watched it. my last recommendation that I think is the the most. The one I think you should see the most if you liked this movie specifically is The Witch from 2015. Oh, that movie's so good. It is really good. It's very, <laughs> very scary. It's graphic. And there's there's some stuff that they touch on in this film, in The Night of the Hunter, about people's pent-up kind of sexual desires or angers or frustrations that they really touch on in a very intense way in The Witch. And The Witch takes place in colonial America, these people settling in a farm far removed from any civilization and they're plagued by an actual witch. Mm-hmm. Another good movie that does a lot of, of not, it does a good job of not showing you too much. Exactly. A lot of things happen in the movie, but you don't know if they're really caused by the witch or if they're being caused by just the family that's living on the farm. Yeah. That's a great film. And so if you're good. looking for some really spooky fall time vibes, <laughs> that's the one for you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Love that movie. I think it's like one of, Maybe I'm being nice, but like one of the decade's best horror movies. Ooh, you are I, just throwing out the best ofs today, the best aren't ofs. you? It's just a greatest hits time. But honestly, like The Witch is just so, once kind of like Night of the Hunter, not really a lot like it, and definitely very, very memorable. Yeah. So, all right, is that it? I think that's that about. I think that's about what we've got. Great. If you would like to write to us and tell us some things about your thoughts on The Night of the Hunter, or you want to suggest a movie for us to talk about, or really just tell us your thoughts about film or anything in general, you can shoot us an email to cinemaadventurepodcast at gmail.com. You could reach us both on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Aiden Walkero. And what are you? I think I'm at Blake W. Peterson. I don't use it that much. But I think that's what it is. You can try to reach Blake on Twitter. You'll reach me. You'll find me, maybe. (laughs) If you want to hear more of us, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. We're there. You can also find us at uwpodcast.com. We've got a bunch of other really great shows on uwpodcast.com. We're called The Soundbite Network. There's Pillow Talk, which is a sex and relationships podcast. There's Home Plates, which is a wonderful food podcast. There's Women in STEM, which is all about women studying things in the STEM field. It's an interview series. Yeah, what? Wow. We have Play Like a Girl, which is a a, all-women's podcast about sports. Certainly check all those out if you're into podcasts. Such a variety. Lots of choices. Something for everybody. (laughs) So thanks, everybody, for listening in. We will catch you next Monday. What am I supposed to say? I don't know. Something cool. Something snappy. It's not a podcast. Do I have anything? Uh, (laughs) You do. There's too much pressure. Okay. Uh, So we'll see you next time, everybody. Try your best not to get killed by a serial killer. Bye-bye. Bye. what junk food is like in other places? My name is Dee Dee Madigan, host of the weekly podcast Home Plates, where I ask that question and many more. Each week, an international student joins me here in the studio to discuss their food culture. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday right here on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, 
visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.